0: listeners, and welcome to Costume Station Zero. This is uh, Bob Mitch, and I'm here with my good friend Andy Teal. Uh, Andy, of course, uh, people will know from uh, DragonCon, as a fantastic Seventh Doctor cosplayer. He also is the founder of the PrideDoneAcademy.com uh, website and uh, originally Yahoo Group, and he's also generally the, uh, I don't know, Master of Ceremonies, really, for the Doctor Who cosplayers at DragonCon. So, Andy, welcome. Thank you. Hello, hello. So, uh... Wow, uh, you know what? as we record this Dragon con is coming up very very quickly in a, about a couple of weeks. Um, you must be very excited. I am very excited and a little bit frazzled at this point because there's a lot of a lot of organizing to do. Well, you do take quite a quite a bit on yourself there um, well let's let's start with the the Academy. Um, how did that come about? Well, for a
1: long time. Back in the, the wilderness years of Doctor Who, the Doctor Who costumers at Dragon Con were all like a scattered bunch. I think it's probably this way at every convention. Occasionally you'd see, you know, like a brown fedora or a scarf and you go, oh, there's one of us over there. But we didn't really talk to anybody because we're like shy by nature. So I, uh, for years, I was coming as the seventh Doctor. I just, I have literally been wearing that costume since 1987. And Dragon Con introduced this parade one year, it was like 10 years ago, and they said, uh, we're going to have this great costume parade. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun just to get out there and march in Dr. Who costumes. And, um, we, there were just like four of us who were going to march. <laughs> just four. It was me, a guy I came with, another guy I would bumped into, I uh, had known for a couple of years, who was, he was dressed as the master, but he was literally wearing a black suit, and another friend of mine who was dressed as Ace, and we're, we're going to get out there and march, even though like the 501st is 100 people. We're going to represent Doctor Who, because that's what I've been trying to do for so long, and I'd always wanted to find a way to get all the Doctor Who costumers together, because we didn't talk to each other, just to, give them, just to say, hey, there's a group of us. We don't have to be a club or anything. It would be nice if we felt... Like the Doctor Who still existed, because there was no new series at the time. Oh, sure. I remember. So I, I, I <laughs> yeah, it was those years. So I decided I'm going to march, uh, the four of us. And I go to register, and they said, what's the name of your group? And I said, well, it's just four people. We, so yeah, we have to have a name. So I kind of panicked, and I thought, uh, Doctor Who names Pride on Academy, because I've always been a big fan of Time Lord Society. And I said, okay. And they wrote that down, and I thought, oh, man, that name is, well, at least no one's ever going to know it. But that was it. That was how it started. And there were four of us. And I don't think anybody knew who we were, because our costumes, apart from, you know, some I mean, some were recognized. The Seventh Doctor is pretty recognizable, but mostly we were just out there and we we enjoyed the heck out of it. So people waved at us and they noticed, and so I started telling every Doctor Who fan I saw, hey, you know, come 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 join us. We it's time to unite. And and so we we did, and I, I decided, hey, it would be fun to start a costuming site, and then there got to be so many people. I started a Yahoo group, and then it expanded beyond the Yahoo group because everybody said, well, we're sick of Yahoo groups. Can we, can, we, can we have a forum? So I started into a forum, and I finally, yeah, that's where it came from. Did that make any sense?
0: Yeah, no, completely. I, I think it's, uh, yeah. it's a clearly blossomed into quite the group, um, especially at DragonCon, and it, it's been a good web resource as well.
1: Yeah, The idea has always been to start a proper costuming resource site like... Uh, like the livejournal DW cosplay site, and it's been it's been on the back burner for years. As the forum kicks along, and I've been stockpiling information and sort of, you know, I've got it, and I've got all the great breakdowns from from people like yourself. Who eventually, when we start the actual resource site, it's going to be huge. But. It hasn't happened yet because I just there's only so much time in the day, and i uh, it will happen eventually, but until then it's uh, just a forum for discussing costumes and swapping information there are no There are no breakdowns or tutorials yet, but uh, soon
0: uh, it's definitely the place to go if uh, anyone attends Dragon Con in Doctor Who costume to uh, organize, certainly with uh, like minded folks like yourself um, and actually, that group's really grown over the last uh, five or six years uh, What was the uh, the latest count last year? Uh, the latest count for people, it's, it's hard to be sure uh, because people sort of come and go,
1: but I think there were almost 150 of us in the parade. Wow. Uh, the forum itself passed 500 members about two weeks ago. We had a big uh, sort of like celebratory upgrade to the site uh, in honor of our 500th and our 10th anniversary. I believe this year
0: is year 10. Well, I remember finding you guys when you just had the Yahoo group, and uh, it was very, very helpful because at the time, which was uh, probably around 2004, uh, there really wasn't much on the web um, for Doctor Who costuming, and I'm desperately trying to find details and people that could help and people that have done, you know, Tom Baker or other doctors before. And, you know, and and you were really kind of the only guys out there I, I immediately found. And I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs>
1: oh, that's really good to hear. Because uh-huh. we don't, I mean, obviously we're based on the East Coast and a lot of us attend DragonCon, but I don't want it, you know, I want very much for it not just to be dragon con forum you know and
0: that's that's where we convene generally but i want it to be a good resource for costumers absolutely um now since you are such a big dragon con attendee and i've never been sadly so could you kind of fill me in on, on what it's like and uh w- would you also say that is your favorite convention to attend in costume or do you have another one? Oh my gosh no it is dragon con is
1: dragon Con's like a life-changing experience it really is it is like the highlight of our year. We never, I go to a few other conventions. I go to MegaCon because I live in Florida and I go to, you know, I've been to Pittsburgh Comic-Con a couple of times. And for, for me, they're like, it's, it's like little little tastes of what going to DragonCon will be like because it's crazy. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's five days at this point. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It used to just be Friday, Saturday. It just keeps getting bigger. Like Thursday is the unofficial day, but that's when everybody starts to show up. And they've started putting programming on Thursday just because they know people are going to be there. <laughs> As they do. Yeah, it, it, it has taken over the entirety of downtown Atlanta. You know, it used to be just one hotel or two, and over the years there have been hotels that we've either left or gotten kicked out of for being too rambunctious, because you know us geeks are rambunctious. But uh, the bigger it gets now, the more it expands back into those hotels, and they'll sort of welcome us. So now it's, I think it's every hotel in downtown Atlanta, except for the Ritz-Carlton, which I'm sure we'll eat one of these days. And it's, people say it's like 45,000 of your closest friends. That's the... uh the <laughs> the great thing about Dragon Con is I think it's the only volunteer run convention of its size. I mean really the two big conventions Dragon Con and SDCC that's that's how I heard I hear it told. And I think the big difference is that Comic-Con which sounds amazing and I really want to go it is. is is more corporate like it's it's more like a trade show for Hollywood. I think Dragon Con the tone is slightly different because it's all volunteer run. Any profit is, that is made goes right back into next year's convention.
0: And it's it, um, it, it's a different thing, and both of us are at a disadvantage because you've been going to Dragon Con so long, and I've been going to SDCC so long. San Diego Comic-Con, for those who don't know. And so we're a little biased. Uh, actually, um, I, would, I would generally, from what I've heard, agree with that statement. Uh, I mean, Comic-Con is great, but it's like triple the size of DragonCon. It's just enormous. Sometimes the... Yeah. the sure amount of people can actually get to you you have to really pick your battles it's so hard to get into but once you're there it is a good time assuming you know what you're getting into and for cosplay it's really awesome and the level of of cosplay is certainly you know very similar to dragon con there's always so many amazing people that you see and i can compare because i see all the great photos not only of your group but of the uh you know just generally speaking on Flickr. Oh, yeah. I look at the SDC pictures every year and I so want to go. I wish we could just combine the fan groups and just have like an exchange program so we could all experience it. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. I know we've, we've talked about it, but of course, uh, practicality and money always stand in the way. But I would highly recommend, uh, actually, almost more so than Comic Con, you especially should come out to Gallifrey 1. Oh, I want to. Very much.
1: Yeah. I do. I, I, and again, it's just a matter of money. I've Honestly, I've been, I've been west of the Mississippi in this country once. Yeah, I've been out to Colorado. I've never made it that far out. I uh, see. I see. But I, I will one of these days. Like this year, me, missing the opportunity to meet William Russell was painful. Mm, and he was such a good guy. Oh, my God. Just knowing that it's like, oh, my God, he's alive and he's in the United States. Mm-hmm, totally. Uh, I wanted to meet him. But Dragon DragonCon Dragon Con is... Uh, there's, there's a, there's a. I think what, what really makes it wonderful is there's that feeling of camaraderie that you can only get at a, at a convention, and no matter how big it gets, and it, I think the challenge they've had the last couple of years is that it's gotten so big that, that, that people are. I mean, obviously it's not as big as SDCC, which blows my mind because people at DragonCon these days, you know, complain a lot about how crowded it's gotten. So that's part, huh. part of why they have to keep expanding because you know huh. you find yourself pushing through. So the idea that there are that many more people in San Diego is, is. Daunting. Just to hear you say that, it's like, my God.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... Yeah. <laughs> can't have there aren't see. enough oxygen molecules for everyone. So, uh, walk me through a bit of uh, everything you um, kind of helped set up and organize there for the uh, the Doctor Who cosplayers. Well, um, we use the uh, we use
1: the Pride and Academy Forum as kind of a, a communications and information dissemination hub Uh but we have, we have the parade, which is, which is the big event. That's where everybody sort of comes together. And the parade is on Saturday morning, and we have to coordinate everybody who's going to sign up. Uh, we don't have to know what costume they're in because a lot of people want to keep it a surprise. We have to, we have to get everybody signed up and prepared by a certain point because, because the parade itself is enormous. And the lady who organizes it, who is just amazing, her name is JP, and I don't know how she does it because it's like, it's like organizing the Doctor Who group times 50. Uh, we have to sort of coordinate with her and make sure that everybody's registered a couple of weeks ahead of time. And that's always the trick because people, it's hard to plan a convention that far ahead of time. So you're thinking to yourself, I'd like to do the parade, but I'd also like to do these five panels. So we have to sort of poke people and say, please, please come and register before they hit the cap. Then um, We have a big uh, group dinner, which is uh, a chance for everybody to sit down and meet each other without the pressure of being outside in Atlanta in 100. 50 degree heat with yeah, yeah, yeah. humidity and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, so everybody comes, we have this, we, we end up renting out a substantial chunk of one of the big downtown restaurants every year for everybody to come and just sort of sit and talk. Um, so we have the group dinner and we have an enormous Doctor Who photo shoot, which is, which is pretty standard, you know, at these conventions. you have always got, you know, the League of Lanterns photo shoot, the Heroes Photo Shoot, the Doctor Who photo shoot. Again, in the early years, it was like 10 of us and now... Now we even get the people who didn't want to get up early enough to march in the parade, but do very much want to meet all the Doctor Who people. So they come out, so the photo shoot's even bigger than the parade. We've got like 200 people at the photo shoot, uh, and then uh, we do little little gatherings here and there. We ch- we shoot some funny videos and sketches at the photo shoot, uh, and and we do sort of you know throughout the convention we'll we'll meet up and separate and work together at the uh, the British costuming, uh, sorry, and the British media panel, and yeah, that's about it.
0: Yeah, uh, you're a frequent uh, moderator on that panel, are you not? Um, definitely one of the guiding forces there since you've been doing it so long. I love that panel. I absolutely love it. It um, when we started
1: doing it, there was they had the British media track is great, um, but they they finally said, you know, how we talk about costumes. So I uh, was very happy to come and join in on that, and it's turned into in the beginning, you know, the first couple of years, you do what you wanted. You talk about what Doctor Who or British media costuming is like, and how you can source different pieces and, you know, the difference between, you know, like the super specific costuming versus, you know, costuming more just for fun. And, uh, but after the first couple of years, you realize you're saying the same stuff. So we've turned it into more of a pageant now where people who have come in with costumes of every level get to just sort of show
0: us. So um, is there any other highlights about Dragon Con you want to mention for uh, whether they be Doctor Who costumers or, or not? Highlights of Dragon
1: Con. Well, me, I. I well, there's the, there's the masquerade on Saturday night. Uh, it used to just be a, like a costuming contest. People started telling jokes and doing like, little dances, and now it's more of a show. Like the masquerade, you have a costume and you expect to put on a show. And then since that happened, there's also the costume contest now, which is just you know, to appreciate the, the craftsmanship and the costumes. And everything's a highlight at Dragon Con, man. It's the best part of my year. You don't sleep a lot during Dragon Con.
0: I think during most of the major cons, you, you don't sleep unless uh, you know that's your thing. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I have to make time for sleep. I'm uh, my my days of going without sleep uh, for an entire con are kind of behind me. But uh, I do know many people who uh, who party very late into the night, and uh, yeah, they're always a bit uh, haggard in the morning. But so be yeah, it. So yeah, be yeah, it.
1: yeah. Uh, my uh, we're me and my my personal crowd. We're the boring crowd, but we play the hell out of some board
0: games. Isn't <laughs> Um, so, uh, on a related note, wh- how what are your feelings on masquerade cosplay versus hall cosplay? Um, I'm I've never really thought of there being a distinction. What do you mean exactly? Well, you know, I mean the the general uh, feeling I always have a masquerade. Well, usually with masquerade cosplay, you have to uh, do a lot of prep and make sure that you're in the green room. It means less fo- floor time at Comic Con, in particular. Um, you're not you're not allowed to wear your masquerade costume before it's seen on stage. You can wear it on Sunday, but that limits your exposure in it. So you don't get that floor time with the fans versus a big oh, wow. stage production. And usually for masquerades, it's going to be... A, well, you aim to have something usually a little more involved for something like that because it's so huge. Uh, for a smaller wow. masquerade, I understand that, yeah, there there is less of a difference. It's just, oh, I'm wearing the same costume over today, but on a stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I never really thought about it. There, there certainly are, I do see...
1: That's true. I, I, do, I only do see one or two costumes in the Masquerade that I've seen throughout the convention, but yeah, there's, there's less, I think, of a distinction uh, at what I'm used to, because it's, uh, pe- people don't tend to, to hold them back unless they're the kind of costume that you can only wear on a stage, you know, for a few minutes, because walking around in it would be literally impossible. We have a, a few groups who do that, that kind of thing, but, um... That's an interesting question. I, I, I'd never really thought about it. I personally couldn't bear to have a costume that I didn't get to walk around in, because for me the fun of it is being out there. Not, not exactly acting, but being in costume as that character, sort of representing that character and sort of embodying it, and just the fun of meeting people and the experience. I, I don't think I get to hold a costume back until just just to go on stage that would make me very sad
0: yeah it would for me too but some people are very competitive and and uh, and again some costumes in my opinion are definitely designed more to be seen for 5 minutes on a stage more so than walking around a hall in yeah that's a very different thing there there's a there was
1: an amazing group at Dragoncon for a few years who would every year they would have they they would top themselves and bring out these amazing enormous foam wood metal and latex creations
0: they did the entire cast of the nightmare before christmas one year so, uh, stepping back to the beginning, uh, what ha- what attracted you to the hobby of costuming?
1: That is an excellent question. I have been doing it since God knows when. I think I, I was born two days before Halloween. That's probably where it started because huh. Halloween was always my my favorite holiday. Still is, and I always wanted to put together a new costume every year. And I I was I was a weird kid. Um, I'm a I'm a freelance artist, and I I do a lot of sculpture. And when I was – I learned – I had the world's coolest art teacher when I was younger. He's my mentor, Alan Kuykendall. I say his name in the hopes that someone listening to this podcast will hear it and go, oh, I know him. Because that's likely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he taught me when I was in fifth grade how to do latex appliances. So, yeah, I, I remember 1988 came around, and I was obsessed with – or 89. I was obsessed with the Michael Keaton – batman and i did i i I spent months creating the joker costume for myself and i had like latex cheeks and chin and tip of the nose and you know i mean i i was just i've always been obsessed with it i don't know what attracted me to it i just love the idea of i don't know transformation getting just getting to embody a character that you find personally meaningful and
0: no, I, I completely agree. That's that's, the, that's definitely the reason I like to do it. I've often said that for me, it's it's representing my heroes, uh, childhood wish fulfillment, that kind of a thing. And yeah, I don't know. You're right. There's something about transforming yourself and uh, and just uh, yeah, putting it out there. We're flying your colors, as my friend Scott always puts it. That's well put. Yeah,
1: it's not. It's not for me. It's not about being a different person. It's about you know I have this this character that I love and uh, just to to embody that and to to take it to other people and say, hey, look at this great thing. It's, you should love it, too. Yeah,
0: exactly. It sounds like you had a, an early start, uh, certainly, with things like prosthetics, if you were doing that for the Joker. Now, would you consider that your first costume, or your first significant costume? Um, hmm, that's a good question.
1: No. No, I think my first significant costume was... Actually, wait a minute, maybe. No, you know what? That's what I'm thinking of. The Joker was 89. My first personally constructed costume would have been... Spock in like I think I did that in like 86 Uh, a
0: movie Spock or a classic series Spock
1: a classic series Spock I was Star Trek obsessed (laughs) I I I I remember putting together putting together I remember getting the ears and 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 trying to duplicate the makeup with the eyebrows and it was it wasn't even it wasn't even classic series Spock it was uh, unaired pilot Spock ooh with with, yeah with the blue turtleneck because it was easier to find a blue turtleneck when I was you know You know, in sixth grade than than it was to find a uh, uh, blue with a black V-neck.
0: You were going obscure variant before it was cool to go obscure (laughs) variant. Yeah, I see it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And And then The Seventh Doctor.
0: The Seventh Doctor was actually the year before, two years before I did The Joker.
1: It must have been. I never thought about it, but yeah. As Sylvester McCoy, like, appeared on, not even on screen, as soon as he appeared on the cover of Doctor Who magazine, I went, I don't know. Something about him just touched me. I don't know. He just really... I connected with him immediately, just the
0: sparkling smile and impishness. So I have to do. I'm sorry to catch up. I just wanted to. Well, oh. f- first off, I noticed it's very interesting that uh, there's a lot of people I know who are um, among my friends who were big Doctor Who fans, but were pretty big Star Trek fans as well. I don't find that. Uh, almost mythical divide between truck fans and Doctor Who fans as much personally as it seems to be purported on the internet. So I always wonder if that's sort of, I don't know, some sort of strange perception or propaganda or what, but it seems like, for the most part, sci-fi fans like to band together. Um, There's supposed to be a Doctor Who Star Trek? I didn't know that. Hmm. That's terrible. Yeah, no, it's. I'm not saying it's it's hugely prevalent, like a like a, a Bruins versus the Trojans kind of a thing. <laughs> but uh, you know, it uh, it seems to have always been. People always say like, oh no, we're crossing that line. And I go, yeah, but all my friends like both. And if you did cross the line, cool, let's see it. Like you know, <laughs> <laughs> that would that would that's kind
1: of sad. Yeah, heck yeah, I I couldn't dream of not enjoying Star Trek. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there's the mythical Star Trek-Star Wars divide, which I think is more just fun to have to play with than anything else.
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, totally.
1: There was, um, a, there was, a, there was a, a rivalry at DC a couple of years ago um, where the... Uh, what exactly happened? There was an ambush. I believe, I believe some Star Wars customers ambushed the Klingon assault group and pelted them with tribbles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, then, and then the following day... There was a lightsaber battle, I think, in Retribution. <laughs> <laughs> I missed the whole thing, but I heard about it later. The Klingons! They got the Klingons with Tribbles!
0: Wow. No. The, no, hey, that's the, if they're going to fight with stuff, it's going to be Tribbles, right? Exactly. Because mm-hmm, then you never run out of ammo. Yeah, that's true! I never <laughs> thought of that. Also, things to fall comfortably onto when you hit the floor. Indeed. So it's got like a couple of different uses there. Um so going back to the seventh doctor cuz clearly that's what you're really known for and I figure it's time to it's time to dive into some seven here. <laughs> uh so uh I assume you've come a long way since that that first version of uh, of that cuz I, I did a version of Tom Baker uh you know who's my doctor and I presume from what you're saying Sylvester McCoy would be who you consider your doctor. Um that Certainly my I don't know i not my
1: first doctor but but in as much as I have a favorite Definitely my favorite.
0: Okay, that's what I mean, your favorite. When I say your doctor, it's usually your favorite doctor. But yes, Uh, your your first and your doctor, I do believe, can be different. I know a lot of people say it's the same, and I say, yeah, often, but not always. Yeah, see, my first episode was Ark in Space, so it would be the fourth doctor for me, because that's where I started. Yeah, well, I think most Americans our age did start with Tom Baker. it's It's almost impossible for me to find anyone who grew up in the PBS years who didn't start with Tom Baker. (laughs) <laughs> it's true, yeah. From what I hear, from what my brother tells me, I actually watched
1: Volva first, but I don't remember it. <laughs> they say, apparently, they showed Castorvalva and then skipped back to Ark in Space the next week.
0: Nah, I don't remember that first part. Mm. Uh yeah I know my my first I remember was Genesis of the Daleks so oh my God so good mm-hmm. yeah stayed with me for a long time that one did but uh, anyway back to Ms. Sylvester right, McCoy. Sorry. uh no it's fine so uh you started doing your version I I did a really ugh, I don't even like looking at it version of Tom Baker when I was about um about the same time around eighty eight or eighty nine. And it was just stuff thrown together out of like my parents' closet, basically. And uh, that's
1: the best way to do it, though.
0: It is because let's face it, your parents are going to wear something more like the doctor than you probably will at that age. Of the, well, let me think. I was probably about twelve or thirteen. So uh, yeah, but you know, that's that's where the seeds are sown, and and you move on. So what? How did you approach it then? Pretty much the same way. Only <laughs> with the seventh doctor, you 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 run into things where it's impossible
1: to to. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you, you're not going to find a question mark sweater vest in your in your dad's closet, but uh, no. but yeah, pretty much the same way. I first thing I did was ransack the house. Uh, I found a white blazer in my mom's closet, and uh, this was this was this was wonderful. I found in the upstairs hall closet where many old things are stored a trove of costuming goodness because apparently during the 70s my dad wore a lot of ugly plaid pants. <laughs> Just polyester plaid, and they were perfect! Oh, yeah. As soon as I found the white blazer, and I found these brown polyester plaid, these brown plaid with blue and white checks, and they were perfect. And so i the doctor, was like, all right, I'm doing this. <laughs> um, I, the luckiest thing in the world, and to this day, this is the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me, I decided I was doing it, so I just wanted to go hat shopping. You know, I live in a small town in rural-ish Georgia. Uh, we have, you know, well, a couple of department stores. We had a Belk's, and we go to Belk's, and there's, you know, the table of hats, which I've never even noticed before, and right there in the middle of it is this straw uh, Optimo Panama hat with a snap brim. I didn't know any of these things were strange or rare at the time. They had, like, five of them, I think. I don't know. I'm making that up. They probably just had the one. I picked it up. I put it on. I popped the brim up, and it was perfect. mm mm-hmm. It was not until like three years later when I had had dozens of people at conventions asking the strange child where he got the hat. i um, like, I, I just I bought it that I discovered it was a very rare hat to find in the States. Um, <laughs> and I wore that hat after my head was too big for it. I wore it till it started to get holes in the straw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was perfect. So yeah, I just ransacked. I found a, a tartan uh, scarf in my mom's closet like he had in his first episode. I found a paisley scarf that I nicked and never gave back and yeah i just sort of, and then of course i had to make the sweater vest
0: yeah the sweater vest i'm sure that that's a talk in and of itself um but let, let's let's fast forward a bit um to uh you know now you're now you're older and you've got a fantastic version of this costume uh can we start how that uh came together uh it's never really stopped uh, every literally every
1: single year since 1987 i've tweaked it. Maybe there were one or two years there where I rested on my laurels, but every year I just of add some new thing. You know, there were some years where I would overhaul greatly. You know, I'd find a better pair of pants and I'd do that and I'd find a better jacket and, I'd, and I got old enough to learn how to sew and I made my own, uh, you know, I would cut off trims from the jacket I had and add the belt in the pockets. So every year I, I would just add something new. I remember about three years ago I declared that it was finished. Mm-hmm. I said, all right, I'm done. I have mm-hmm. officially done everything I can and that was right about the time that companies like spoonflower and uh were coming into existence and people were
0: starting to produce exact replicas of things and i was like okay oh, i'm not done it's uh, it's an addiction isn't it i mean um uh, i i know i'm always continually upgrading uh all of my doctor costumes and it's worse for me since i've got you know all 11 of them Mm-hmm. um and even though I, I keep to one particular look usually per doctor there's still always oh yeah i can make those boots better oop, yep yeah, well i can you know i can tweet that mm-hmm. tie yeah mm-hmm.
1: exactly
0: yeah yeah no, no matter how good you think you have it you know because to most people they're gonna be like oh it's great and you're like oh but and you don't you don't point out the flaws but you know secretly like oh but i, I know one day i'm gonna make mm-hmm. this better yeah. um so uh so yeah no uh let's let's kind of dive into the, the seventh doctor costume a bit here now the the, uh, the it, it went underwent a bit of an evolution on TV because of course he wore the sweater um, underneath the pants at first with the suspenders, uh, and then he also had the wangi bamboo umbrella for Paradise Towers before going to the very iconic question mark umbrella in Delta and the Bannerman. Right, uh, and uh, the hat always started very, very battered, and it became much more nice as it went on. And then, of course, he switches to so the brown jacket with the brown uh, hanky uh, and brown hat band, and you know the whole thing shifts darker by season twenty six. But for the most part, all of the other elements more or less stay the same. So, uh, what did you what did you first do about the jacket? Well, the first jacket, like I said, was this <laughs> this,
1: this white uh, blazer that I found in my mom's closet. But uh, the trick with the jacket very much is the color um, because it photographs so differently. People talk about how different <clears throat> the eighth doctor's jacket looks because it's reflective, but oh, the seventh yeah. doctor's jacket gives me fits because there are some photos taken in broad daylight where it's almost white. And then you, some photos bring out the yellow and some bring to like, Oh, it's a dark gray. Oh, it's a light gray with, you know, like blue overtones. So, but I, uh, so I started looking around thrift shops for, you know, gray linen jackets, which are everywhere. Um, uh, eventually I found one that came with a matching pair of pants, so I cut the pair of pants up to make uh, the balloon pockets on the outside and the, the extra flap on the front and the, the belt in the back, the safari belt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, then I, I wore that for a few years, but it was way too big for me. It was the best I had able to find, and I you know, was a pretty tiny guy. So I, I finally said, all right, well, I'm going to upgrade the jacket. I'm going to do it as precisely as possible. So I started doing research into, into the materials, and I found... There's a lot of conflicting information about what the jacket was made from, which is weird, because the person who constructed it swears that it was linen. And the costume designs say that it was raw silk. And if you look at, there's one close-up, super close-up, that show that it's kind of a rough spun, so it looks like raw silk. Uh, Then I showed it to Sylvester McCoy, and he said, that's a much nicer fabric than I had, so I... I go with raw silk because it seems to be the closest texture that I've been able to find, but uh, it doesn't wrinkle quite right. But yeah, I, I, I went to this, I went to this uh, factory in in Atlanta that that produces you know just custom suits, and they had a few just light gray, almost white raw silk suits. It drove me crazy because the suit the the coat has two very strange details. Well, yeah. one very strange detail, one that's just not fashionable right now. It's um. It's got a double vent in the back, which has been out of style for the last several years. Uh, and it's, it was a custom-made coat, so it has pointed fronts. Um, that's hard to describe. Uh, where the buttons and buttonholes come down right at the front before it curves around to the sides. Right. Most jackets curve there, and his is, it comes to a straight 90-degree angle, right. which just doesn't exist on any coat ever, as far as I can tell.
0: right. No, I know what you mean. It's a safari. It's a safari-inspired uh, jacket or blazer in a way, and yeah, it, with the the single button closure and the pointed fronts, as you say, and the back belt. It's at first you think, oh, any blazer will do. And let's face it, if you're going to do this on a budget, a blazer will certainly do. Um, but if you want to get it, you know, closer than most, then yeah, you're talking about getting a custom made or heavily customizing a, a suit jacket. Yeah, and that's the trick. I, I was happy to buy the uh, that one suit and make all the other bits, but there's
1: nothing you can really do about the points in the front. You could even convert a, a single-vent jacket to a double-vented jacket if you're willing to live with that extra seam. Yeah, yeah. There's some overlap you won't get, which is great because it looks very different when you put your hands in your pockets. For a long time I was like, no one's gonna notice. That was back when I was allowed to say things like, no one's gonna notice in my own head. I don't let myself do that anymore. <laughs> when you put your hands in your pockets, the double vents bow out very differently. So you look at yourself in pictures, you go, well that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> But there's nothing you can do about those front bits. So, yeah, the jacket is one of those things that one day, when I am sure what material it was made from,
0: I will I will sit down and sew one myself or have one made. Uh, I've always heard that it was a uh, raw silk as well, and I've seen some raw silks, and I, I can certainly see the argument for that. It's I, I think right now it is the best contender. I, I'm not a believer that it was linen. It doesn't rumple like linen does to me. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I know the brown jacket was a straight uh, wool gabardine. Um, so that's much easier if you do the brown variant. But uh, the um, what was I going to say? In terms of uh, options out there for anyone listening, um, please check out my Seventh Doctor breakdown on dwcosplay.com. Uh, if you go to the user memory section, there's a bunch of Doctor entries among others, and there's a Seventh Doctor entry there. I'll also post the direct link on this uh, post as well. But um, They're
1: very, very good. Go and look at them.
0: Yes, they, they, it's a wonderful primer, and, uh, and Andy definitely gave me a lot of help on it. And, uh, yeah, in, in terms of basic options, if you're not, if you're doing budget, hey, any, any decent, uh, light gray or, or cream, as some people call it, or whatnot, blazer or suit jacket will do you, or brown if you want that variant. Uh, that's certainly where I started. I think a lot of us started that. Uh, I know the very first version of this costume that I did, it was a thrift store, $15, yeah, suit jacket on a rack, you know, and it was the brown one because it was easier to match that color. Yeah. Um, and the uh, but in terms of getting the the exact styling the the two main jackets out there is the Baron boutique and the Magnolia jacket uh, both of which um, are fairly good um, it's just that the Baron's going to be less expensive and that's actually the my current one and I really like it a lot and I know that you in particular Andy gave me a, a great breakdown of the the pros and cons of that jacket which uh, you're welcome to comment on if you like otherwise please, people please check out the breakdown it's very very thorough
1: well um, yeah the coats the Magnoli the, the Magnolia and the Baron they're both very good they're neither one of them is exact, but, I mean, we're talking about very small differences. I mean, you can get either one of them, and if you're as obsessive as you might be, there are little things that you could, you know, just have any alterations person fix and and get it right where you want it
0: to be. Uh, Or you can try asking them yourself, which sometimes they're very good about, and other times, you know, they, they, they might miss the boat. And it's not really their fault. They do these a lot, and, you know, if it's a very minute thing, they might just yeah. go, eh. But again, you're right. Some of this can be done after the fact, totally.
1: Well, that's true. And that, that's me. I'm, I'm, I, I, would, I wouldn't have thought of that, of asking to change it. I would have just bought it and taken it to someone local because I like to you know, be there. And sure. With me, if I can't sew it, I get very frustrated. Like, if I'm not able to do it myself, I, I get, because I'm... Sort of obsessively hands on, so to hand it over to somebody else drives me crazy.
0: Well, I I, I totally see that, but on the other hand, uh, as Scott and I have discussed, um, you know, you should always know your skill set, and if you need to have a piece of um, you know clothing made or a prop made or something that does fall out of said skill set and something that you're probably not going to pursue or you simply don't have the time to learn it and do it at the quality you want, then you have no choice but to outsource. Oh, absolutely. I did not mean to suggest that that costumers should
1: should feel bad about, about taking it to, to someone with that particular skill set and, and saying, you know, I need help with this. I would never, no, everybody's got the things that they do. I, I was just speaking for myself because, I'm like I said, I'm obsessive. But there's when the time came to do my Seventh Doctor pants, after I finally hunted down the fabric I wanted, I tried very hard to sew them up myself. But in the end, I, that was well beyond my ability as an as a extremely novice tailor. Uh, and, and, and I, I
0: happily took them to a real tailor and said, please make these for me. Um, yeah, no, no, completely. I mean, actually it sounds like your philosophy in general when it comes to, uh, making your costume versus buying your costume or commissioning a costume is you try to lean to making it, but obviously, you know, you can't avoid some parts are going to have to be outsourced or sent to someone else. Yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's the big, I think paradigm shift in costuming in the last uh, 10 years is that. Back in the day, I think it was a little... It's different. I'm not sure one is better than the other, but I think it was a little more fun back in the day because you knew no matter what you were making, there was this knowledge that there was no way you were going to get it exactly right because that's impossible. You know, you've, all you've got are fuzzy images. You took off you know, a VCR and a few pictures from a magazine, and everybody who was going into it knew that their costume was going to be th- as good as they could make it, and the fun was showing people, oh, this is how I did it, and oh, this is how I did it. You know, mm-hmm. no, no two pairs of pants... A fifth Doctor pants, for instance, had the same stripe pattern on them. No. Now, between I think the I, I think greater scrutiny and, and um, I won't say greater dedication to costume because people were certainly dedicated back then. My God. Yeah. But an easier access to crafters who can make these things, and just just a different sort of vibe in the uh, in the hobby. You can get things made now, or make them yourself, that are precisely what they used to be. We have access to so many more resources. Places like Spoonflower, who will print you the fabric that you never thought you could get before, or or you know the internet, where where people are able to hunt down exactly the handkerchief that the seventh doctor used. So you know, back in the day, if you had the right colors on it, then yeah, that was great, and everybody knew you know, we're all going to do our best to get that one. Now you can get the exact one, so it adds a different sort of wrinkle to it. Which I think has its, its pros and its cons. Uh,
0: indeed. I mean, uh, I think what you're ultimately saying is uh, we, we have access to better resources, and a lot of this just draws back to the internet. You know, communication is so much better. And uh, we all have uh, DVDs, nice and restored. Yes, all HD do, and everything. Mm, HD, we can get it all nice and screen grabbed and put it on our iPods, or I always say iPods, iPads, and, uh, you know, carry it around with us. Uh, Scott used to put together these things he called stalker books. And uh, they were just printouts of all of these different views of a costume whenever he was out, you know, looking to match shoes or fabric shop or whatnot. And I (laughs) I picked up that habit from him. And, uh, I mean, to a degree, I was already doing it, but I just went full board when I'm like, oh, yeah, that is really smart. I'm going to keep doing that. That's a great idea. And, uh, yeah, no, I always keep your reference materials on hand when shopping. Actually, if you can, try to find a way to stick it on your phone or something, because you never know when you're at the mall going, hey, wait a minute, those boots. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> and uh yeah and and uh, and relying on your memory can be faulty which is the problem but um yeah no I think it's just it's the internet it's the forums uh there's there's so many better resources now and unfortunately as you say there's pros and cons the pros is hey these costumes look amazing now and we're all sharing tips and there's all these great places to get fabric uh, completely reprinted and so forth but the downside is I think it creates um a higher level of competition which has its negative undertones yeah I mean for me I wish
1: <clears throat> I, I would... Ideally, there would be no competition in costuming. I, I, it makes me very sad, the idea that some people feel, if I can't make it look like that, if I can't do it perfectly, there's no point in doing it. Which is... I, I just... I, I I like to encourage people not not to feel that way, because the fun is in the doing of it and the mm-hmm. wearing of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just I mean, I, I've been obsessed with this costume forever. You don't have to do that. I've seen a million costumes that have been put together over a weekend or over a week or even over a year or however long it takes. And they may not be perfect, I don't know, because I wasn't scrutinizing them that well because they were so much fun just to look at.
0: Sure. If the read is there, then that's usually all you need.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've got... Uh, I just... I think the fun is in the doing of it. And, mm. and when, it, when it becomes competitive, when it becomes exclusive, it feels like something's been lost. And I, I try to... I, everybody i talked to i'm like no no just go have fun make it out of cardboard it'll be fun you'll enjoy it
0: yeah i i know i'm I'm with you there at least start somewhere if you want to improve it by all means but don't let a a subtle pantone shade or three millimeters (laughs) of a measurement on you know a cuff stop you from finishing or wearing your costume yeah um yeah but anyway uh back to seven uh, so let's uh, We talked a bit about the jacket uh, And the, the styles were exactly the same For both the brown and the, the, the light grey We'll call it uh, Let's talk the scarf And not the Tom Baker scarf The Paisley <laughs> scarf Actually uh, a little side note It started not as Paisley It was tartan, correct? Yes uh, Time in the run it was tartan And I believe in my breakdown It's a, it's a Fraser tartan if anyone's uh, looking to do the Time and the Ronnie variant. But that Paisley was introduced in Paradise Towers, and uh, something even that confused me at first was that that's, I thought they had switched scarves in season 26, but it's very deceptive because it is the same scarf all the way through, isn't it? Well, let me Let me think for a second. I know that the handkerchief changed. Yes.
1: I feel like...
0: The hat band changed, the tie changed. I'm pretty sure the scarf didn't. I remember reading that somewhere. Yeah. and Yeah, it's the tie. I knew it was one of those two that changed, but you're right, it's the tie. The, um, the, the telling point is uh, there's, a, there's a great close-up of it I finally got from uh, when it was on exhibition. And what was very telling about it was that there is both red and brown colors in it. So it mm-hmm. depends on how it's photographed of which way it'll shift. And I thought, yeah. well, no wonder why they didn't change it, and no wonder why I kept thinking it was changed because you thought, oh, all these other elements changed, they must have changed the scarf too, and that's not the case. I, I don't th- I believe it to be the case; it does not appear to be the case. No, I think you're right. You're you're absolutely right. I told you, my brain is fried. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and yeah, yeah, whatever whatever background it's on is is going to change how it how it appears.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, now, unfortunately, there there isn't a spoonflower option for this right now. Uh, maybe one day there will be, but. Uh, in the in the meantime, uh, finding a decent paisley for this, I have to say from my experience, there was there's a lot of references uh, Vicky uh, Scott's wife makes to the great paisley hunt of uh, 2009, and uh, <laughs> because I when I first did the brown version, it wasn't that hard to find a brown paisley that did the job. It wasn't perfect, but it had the read, and I found it at a um, you could find it at a lot of places. Um, it was just a cotton print that I got at uh, FNS Fabrics. And then searching for one in more of a red tone was mm-hmm. just a pain. Did you have the same problem?
1: I did. I'm, I'm on scarf three or four at this point and I'm, I'm happy with it until I can somehow get the exact one, which I have no doubt will happen one day when someone discovers what it was and introduces it. But mm-hmm. it, yeah, there was the closest I came. There was a Paisley pattern that they had at Joanne fabrics that they ran in a multiplicity of different colors And for me, I was focusing on, there's a lot of red, there's a lot of white, there's a little bit of green, and I wanted to get those three colors in the right mix, so that if you stood back five feet, it had the the right sort of tone to it. The first one I bought, I discovered looking at it later, was a little too orange, so I went hunting again, and I found exactly the same pattern, which is not quite hyper enough, like there's there's not quite as much detail in
0: it, as many little things happening, but it's Mm close, and it has generally the right colors, and I was very happy with that yeah no it, that, that is important in getting the right dimensions and so forth a lot of people think it's a silk uh scarf and i'm leaning to the idea it was some kind of a, a cotton or cotton blend print at least that's how it reads in the photos i've seen of it um i couldn't agree more yeah i don't think it has the sheen to be silk no and i and so that was the mistake i made at first i kept looking for silk scarves for the first like couple of outings and then i finally rethought it and uh, I ended up, uh, like you've, uh, my current scarf, which I think might be 2.0 for me, is um, also from Joann's. L- weird find. I spent weeks checking all these different fabric places, never quite finding it. And then randomly out of Joann's, I found, I'm like, okay, still not perfect, but that's by far the best choice. And, you know, that's the. And <laughs> this way was in waiting. 2009? Yes. That's when I was hunting for mine too. I think. I wonder if we ended up with the same paisley. Very possibly. We should we should do a comparison. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So the the scarf is always uh, a good thing. And actually, you know, my only other close match, and this is a, a thing I like to tell people, is uh, hey, if you're not looking at a fabric, or you're not at a department store looking at whatever that their scarves or whatnot, uh, just look around what can be repurposed. Because I was at a Macy's with my girlfriend, uh, sort of around the same time. This was after I'd done this scarf. This must have been late oh9 early '10. And they had uh, a bunch of shawls for women that were not scarf, no, I'm sorry, scarf, silk. They weren't silk, but very lightweight. And one of them was a red with some cream and a little blue. And it had a really good read. I was like, ooh, but they only had one. So I bought it, and I cut the tassels off, and I tried to repurpose it as a scarf. And it was a little too lightweight, and it was a little too um, a small amount of fabric to make into the proper length. So I had to abandon it. But it was a, it almost worked. And I always tell people to keep their eyes open and uh, yeah. and see what else they can find to repurpose. Uh, briefly touching on the, the tie and, and the hanky and hat band, um, I know that those were tobacco, um, large tobacco uh, hankies that they bought like in bulk. And they would, as I understand it, they cut them diagonally. And uh, they would wrap one end and make that a hat band, and then they'd wrap the other end, or not wrap it, they would just stuff it in his pocket to be the, the pocket hanky. So exactly. they are the same, essentially, just two halves of the same hole. And they had the brown variant for uh, season 26 and the red variant for season 24 and 25.
1: The brown one actually started life as a scarf. Uh, it's, uh, the, the red one's a hanky, the brown one originally was a scarf. It, oh, actually, okay. had, mm-hmm. uh, it actually had rough, um, it had unfinished edges didn't, it didn't have a nice seam at the edge a little bit of a, a deliberate fraying effect and it was uh, a little more sheer
0: yeah the uh no you're right I've, I've seen a couple of raw photos of it that makes far more sense um actually for anyone interested in in copies of this um definitely check out uh steve ricks's uh wonderful blog um uh and he actually uh has done the spoonflower version of those uh, uh hankies and they look great they really, really, really do. He even got a hold of a limited supply of the actual red
1: ones, because they still make them. It's yes. a popular hanky design, apparently, and he's got a... Last I checked, he had a few left. Those things are so cool.
0: They are. They're awesome, and, and yeah, I, I totally jumped on those, and they, they definitely helped make the costume pop. Um, I know. You can't you can't resist it, because he, he introduced the
1: Spoonflower version once, and then he managed to refine it a little bit, and then I think, much to his surprise, he found the original, and I've got all three of them lying <laughs> <laughs> in my closet. It's like, well, this one's red. This one's really red, and this one is blazing. Amazingly red.
0: Yeah, it's different different shades of red.
1: The great thing about the tie is that it was the single most popular necktie for, I don't know, like 10 years during the 70s and 80s. So you go to any thrift store... If you don't find
0: an exact match for the Seventh Doctor's tie, go back tomorrow because you probably will. Oh yes, no, my all of my uh, Seventh Doctor ties, my my two red ties and my one—it's uh, sort of a deep navy-ish brown, almost bluish brown. It—they uh, all came from thrift stores, and you can find fantastic matches with a little bit of hunting. I mean, gosh, to be honest, between three thrift stores, you should find something totally usable, and they're cheap. Yeah, they were just super... It's like a
1: Ford Prefect's sweater vest from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy BBC series. If you're trying to match that, it's the most popular sweater vest of 1977. It's out there.
0: <laughs> Obviously, a, a standard uh, uh, white or maybe off-white dress shirt will do you fine for uh, for the, the undershirt. Luckily, there's no question marks to worry about there. Thank God. And no color buttons. That's the important detail
1: on that one. He has no buttons at the color.
0: Uh, so moving down, let's hit the all-important sweater vest.
1: Oh, more... Uh, that word was supposed to be oh, Lord," and I said oh, more." I don't know
0: what that meant. <laughs> oh, that give was... me give me more sweater vests, please. More, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, obviously, we we need to start by talking about what was the pretty much the only option for people for many a day, which was the Paul sweater vest. Hmm. I
1: originally, I I <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, I had a I had a, a, a clothing painting business because, like I said, I was a weird kid. I did like you know, I would paint mario or a cat or something on, on sweaters and sweatshirts it was popular at the time you know in the 80s so when the time came for me to do my first one i painted one and then the next year i realized i had painted it wrong so i painted another <laughs> one
0: <laughs> and then they introduced the daypole
1: sweater and i was so happy
0: yeah it, for those who uh, really want high detail accuracy it, it doesn't quite work but on the other hand as a nice purchased item Again, the read is totally there. I had my two stages of getting into Doctor Who. I watched it all the time with my dad as a, as a little kid. And then when I kind of became a proper dive in, watch all the episodes, read all the books fanboy, it was right at the tail end of the McCoy era. And I remember getting my, my Day Paul leaflet when I ordered some figures by mail. And it advertised the sweater, and part of me's like, "Oh, that'll be cool. I'll get one later." And I forgot about it for several years. And then when I got into doing costuming and finally was getting to the this, this seventh Doctor, uh, I realized, "Oh, yeah, I'll go get one of those." But this was years later, and they don't—they didn't sell them anymore. You, now, granted, anyone who's looking for one of these can usually find them on eBay. There tends to be a few that come up every year, and they tend to run for, oh, I don't know, $50, 60 bucks. Now, I was so happy
1: when I got that thing. It was my prized possession, and it still kind of is. Because as a as a as a person who was even when they introduced it, obsessed with dressing as the Seventh Doctor, to have something that was an actual sweater, not something that, that you had made yourself, it, even if you were really happy with what you had, but it was a sweater. It was all soft and comfy, and it came right off the screen. We look at it now, and we can say, yeah, they toned the colors down. And it's too big, and wouldn't, but it really was such a nifty thing to have.
0: It, it, no, it really was, and uh, it was great. I think. Am I right in thinking that might have been? The first or certainly one of the first actual, um, commercially produced items of a replica of an item, the doctor wore, um, well, this, the scarves had been around
1: forever. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but and the sonic screwdriver, but but pretty much, yeah.
0: Well, there, yeah, you're right. There were the sonic replicas, but that can kind of fall under props. And the scarves, as I understand it, while there were options to get scarves in the 80s, in terms of an officially licensed scarf, there was only that 1970s one that was briefly available from today's promotions. At least that's what I've read. I think
1: you're right. I I, I wasn't even thinking about officially licensed. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess the scarves were a little more
0: not as common inventions. Yeah, not as common as you'd think, at least in a in a licensed capacity. That's a good point. Oh, the key—the key, of course, a prop, but a prop you wear on a chain. Yeah, that was that was licensed. Yes, okay, and the key. But again, in terms of an article of clothing, I think I think that sweater vest almost takes the cake. I'll give it maybe to the the '70s scarf for uh, Tom Baker, but I, it's definitely worthy of note for that. <clears throat> but um, yeah, no, I had one, and it certainly did the job. And uh, the the only issue being for me, I mean, yeah, there was there was the color, and the question marks were a little big, but um, it was lacking the pockets, and it didn't have the design on the back.
1: Yeah, that, that was that was a little bit disappointing for me when I looked at the back and realized there was nothing there.
0: Um, but you bring up a good point, that for those who didn't have or can't find the day, Paul, um, your next option, I would say, is uh, before getting into the group runs, the, um, the option of simply making or modifying one. Um, and the easiest method is uh, something I see a lot of people do, which is what you described. Um, taking a, a regular pullover sweater or possibly a T-shirt, something that will have at least that kind of V-neck read, and mm-hmm. uh, with that kind of wheat yellow base, and just you know, drawn with fabric markers, the zigzag and the question mark. Um, there's a nice pattern for that on the Seventh Doctor breakdown to help keep people in line in terms of the shape. Uh, and those look pretty good for the money. Um, you know, again, it's all about the read, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. But then, if you want to go the next step up, there's getting one custom knitted, which I know you did initially. So why don't you tell me about that?
1: Yeah, well, I, when I decided it was time to replace the daypole sweater, I. I thought I would have, you know, there were no other options and I thought, all right. I figured the BBC had just gone to some nice little old lady and had one knitted. Um and I happened to have a nice little old lady who worked with me who 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 knitted and I worked forever uh getting you know trying to match the colors and 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 I gave the pattern to her and it turned out she was more of a hobbyist than a master knitter and when I got it back, it was my it was my first effort, but it obviously it didn't look quite right. So I went online searching for knitters and there are a million places where because i mean knitting is a it's a big thing and there are a million forums where people go and i had logged on to one forum and i i sort of very meekly and 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 politely said you know is there anybody who can help me i really want to to get a replica of this this prop from a tv show made and if, if anybody can help me i'd appreciate it and not understanding the forum etiquette for this one forum i posted the same message in two different sub forums on the same forum and I got screaming responses from angry old ladies saying, why the hell are you cross-posting this? We can read. And one person took pity on me. This wonderful woman said, you know what? Just because these ladies are yelling at you, I'm going to make your sweater. Nice. And she turned out to be a true master knitter. I mean, she knits in her sleep. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, her name's Deborah. She's one of the nicest people I've ever known. And she worked her fingers to the bone, knitting me a replica of the sweater. And I got it in work for a couple of years, and... I realized, as you do, that it was slightly wrong. And Deborah was kind enough to, to make me Sweater Version 2 because she's as obsessive as I am. She went to, uh, to trade shows looking at different weights of yarn, yarns that were imported from the UK in the hopes that they would be more accurate with the colors, which they were. Um, we cross-referenced uh, a million photos and patterns, and, and she made me Sweater Version 2, which is what I wore... It is now one of my prized possessions because it was it was knitted specifically to my measurements and and to the specifications and everything. Uh, this year, I got one of the incredible sweaters uh, from your group run, which has the distinct advantage of being uh, sourced from an original screen used, which is amazing. Oh yeah! I never thought I would ever have access to. And as soon as, and of course, I, I ordered one from you because I I, tra- I handle the one that Deborah knitted for me with kid uh, with kid gloves. I'm way too careful with it, and I'm aware that the way it's knitted, if it snags on a button, it's going to destroy itself. Ooh. Uh, and then I got the one from you, and I had seen the comparisons because they're so perfect, and I realized as soon as I had it in hand that I had the measurements wrong on mine. Well, how so? <laughs> this this is frustrating. Sylvester McCoy and I are the same height. We're both five six, and. and I had just assumed, as you do, that two, five, six people, and I should have thought of this. Being a sculptor, I should have, I should have thought that human proportions are variable. I just assumed we had the same proportions. So I took measurements from how it sat on him and at what point of his body it terminated. And I had worked out, you know, down to, you know, like the eighth of an inch, how big the question marks and the zigzags had to be in order to fit that number of them on the sweater. Mm-hmm. I had used, I don't remember what I used as a, as a baseline. I like think I used his hand or something. No, I didn't. I was part of his torso. And, and when I got yours, I realized that the question marks on the original are half inch smaller than mine. And I went back and tried to figure out how I'd gone wrong with all this work. And it just turns out he has a longer torso than I do. So, in order to get one more row of question marks on, onto mine, to make the number of rows of question marks match, I had expanded the question marks by half an inch, and that had compensated. But they're not screen accurate. It's just that he's, <laughs> he's got a longer torso than me by one row of question marks. <laughs>
0: Well, this brings up a good point as a tangent, and that is, uh, you know, is it more important that you make it read correctly for you, for your body type, for your height, uh, or is it better to be screen accurate down to the detail, even if it might make it look wrong on you? That's, yeah, exactly, and it's
1: a very tricky question. I, my opinion is it falls somewhere in the middle. You try to pay a little bit of attention to one, a little bit of attention to the other, uh, with me, it's just, yeah, I just take a look at photos, photos of myself in costume and go, eh, it doesn't feel right, maybe I should change it. But uh, when it came to the question marks, I always kind of felt looking at pictures of myself in the sweater that something felt off, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Now looking at the new one, I, I was I was frustrated when I when I bought it. If you remember, I was like, oh, but I want to get an extra small because it'll have the right number of of rows, but it'll be too tight on me and it's pointless. So I finally... I decided I would rather have the right size question marks and one extra row, because I think the size of the question marks have a little more impact on the eye, the sheer Mm -hmm. number of question marks, whereas that bottom row is going to mostly fold up over your waist, you're not going to see it, so it comes to, that was the concession I made for
0: I, I do know some people that ordered the extra small simply because uh, I presume they're displaying it and uh, they're not naturally an extra small simply because they are about accuracy and they wanted to have it look right as opposed to wear right. And uh, that's all down to personal preference. Um, touching on that I uh, briefly is that, yeah, uh, the the Sylvester McCoy group run, the first one, because uh, for those listening, there were two, uh, started, uh, gosh, that's probably, those have been the longest group runs because it takes so long To get so many people, because the the minimums involved on that group run um, are so high, it's such a custom sweater that it took, uh, gosh, like a year to get enough people to get going on that thing. And there was so much R and D, and you know, sitting there and counting stitches and all the high res (laughs) photos. Oh my god! Oh yeah, I know that feeling. (gasps) To nail down that pattern and uh, and picking yarns and everything you did, we had to do. And I remember for the first run, we didn't have access to the original. Uh, we just had a ton of reference photos. And uh, Scott mentions this, but, you know, the turquoise we had on the first run was too light. We had to resource and go a little darker, a little greener. And uh, finally, after, I mean, good God, that, that list started in April of 08. And they finally <laughs> delivered um, in March of 2010. So quite, quite a long haul (laughs) for, for that. Now, granted, a lot of that was sign up time and collecting payments and figuring out, you know, some R and D on it, but still that was a run of about 55 sweaters and, uh, they were great. They, they certainly, you know, they looked very nice and they had your pockets and the uh, design on the back and everything. Um, but then there was demand for more every time. I swear, every time someone sees one of those sweaters, whether it's a friend of mine wearing it or I'm wearing it, everyone goes, Oh, where'd you get that? I got to get one. And part of me says, Well, I can help you, but it won't be fast. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, Why is it though? they're that was, beautiful. No, 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 they came out great. And then, so for the second run, um, which the minimum sadly went higher, so it took us still like about another year to get enough, enough people. Um, and this run ended up being about 130 units. And, uh, we, I, I had the terrible, terrible, um, uh, problem of trying to deal with the colors again, and so luckily a good friend of mine uh, who owns one of the originals stepped up and said, "Hey, you know, I'll help you out, and uh, you know, we'll we'll compare it to mine, and I'll help resource the colors and correct one or two tiny measurement mistakes we'd made." So these second run sweaters are about as good as you're ever going to get to owning an original. Uh, it it is it is pretty amazing. I, I have to, and it's a perfect example
1: of of when it comes to buying things versus making them if you you are the sort of person who has to have it you know like 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 me who's just obsessed with accuracy you can't make one you're gonna at first i was galled i was like well i'm just gonna buy it I i didn't do anything but if you wanted that accurate it's one of those pieces where you know you have to say okay you know it's all right to buy this
0: yes no completely i mean something like that's so specific that if you if you have the money and you have the patience by all means do it and uh, I'm not against uh, organizing a third run if demand is there. The problem is that it's just you need 100 to 150 people to get that thing going, and uh, it's. Let's just say this: if it happens, and I never say never, uh, it will not be very soon. But anyone listening to this, if you're uh, interested or you you see, I'll post a photo of it and a link to the previous group run postings. Uh, feel free to uh, message me, and if we get enough people, I'll get it running. Just you know, just expect it to be a long wait. Um, but yeah, no, those, those really were the best. And actually, if you're in a rush, I highly recommend, uh, just keeping your eyes peeled on the forums and eBay every once in a blue moon, someone amazingly does sell theirs. Um, uh, especially people that wanted to upgrade from the two runs or someone who ordered two. I know a handful of people that did that purely for backup. Um, and, uh, and there you go. And that's where we lose the signal for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed listening. Please be back in a couple of days to pick up part two of my chat with Andy Teal. If you have any questions, uh, please go to our website at www.costumestationzero.com. And if you want to learn more about the Prideone Academy, just go to uh, Prideone, P-R-Y-D-O-N, academy.com. It's a great forum with a great bunch of people. I'm sure you'll learn a lot. Um, And you can hopefully hook up with them at next year's DragonCon. Oh, and if you want to know anything about my uh, future group runs that we were uh, referring to there, uh, just go to my blog at honorarydoctor.livejournal.com. I also tend to update these as well at dwcosplay.com, where I'm also a moderator. Anyway, I guess that'll be about it. Uh, hope to catch you soon. Thanks so much. And I'll be signing off here at Costume Station Zero.